Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Socks are the most requested item in U.S. homeless shelters. And as a clothing item, they're all too often imperfect. Painful toe seams, slipping heels, low-quality fabrics, you get the gist. Today's guests, the founders of Bombas, bring these two perhaps unlikely things together. An apparel brand that donates an item of clothing to homeless shelters or homelessness-related charities for every item purchased. It's a one-for-one model and works to develop exceptionally high-quality socks and T-shirts. It's a mission that is more relevant than ever amid the COVID-19 pandemic and recent spotlight on racial injustice. Homeless individuals are a high-risk group and people of color who represent about 24% of the general population, comprise about 61% of all COVID-19 infections and 50% of all deaths, according to US CDC. David Heath is co-founder and CEO of Bombas and Randy Goldberg, is co-founder and chief branding officer. David and Randy, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Excited to be here. Great to have you. Very excited to have you, both as a customer, a fan of the brand, and also what you guys have been doing. So let's just start with kind of a basic question. Which came first, the desire to help the homeless or the desire to build a better sock? Great question. This is Dave. Randy and I were working together at a media company. and. Within a few months of starting at the same place, we realized we became kind of fast friends and shared this passion for entrepreneurship and wanting to start businesses. And so throughout the five years that we worked together, we were always bringing ideas to the table and saying, hey, is this viable? And one day I was on Facebook and I came across a post that said that socks were the number one most requested clothing item at homeless shelters. And I remember walking over to Randy's desk and asking him if he knew this fact. And of course, he said no. And both of us kind of felt like, man, that's pretty sad. Here's an item of clothing that neither of us have spent more than a few seconds a day thinking about. And this is really perceived as a luxury item for almost 650,000 people in the US every year. And so we didn't immediately go, oh my God, this is our business and this is what we're going to start. We just kind of were like, all right, well, Let's go out and buy some socks and carry them with us in our bags to and from work and hand them out and do our little part. And the more and more we started to do that, the more we wanted to figure out a way to kind of scale that. And this is back in 2011. So Tom's was in their fifth year of business and growing quite rapidly with the one-for-one shoe model. And this small little eyewear brand had just launched called Worry Parker. And they extended the one-for-one model that Tom's had kind of created to eyewear. And so we both looked at each other and we're like, maybe we can do this with socks. If you think about what came first, we're still having that debate in terms of what Bombas stands for. Are we about mission first or are we about delivering comfort and quality to our customers first? And those two ideas that were the beginning of our company are still the two main pillars of our brand to this day. But correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, I've spoken to so many folks who are in this kind of one-for-one space and social impact, and everybody says, though, both have to work. You have to have a very strong social mission, and the product better damn well be awesome, right? For sure. If you think about the product side of things, it's about trust. If you deliver a product and it doesn't operate the way the customer thinks it's going to operate, if it lets someone down, no matter if you have a mission, they're just not coming back. So you have to deliver on both parts authentically. I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and given our kind of success, you know, a lot of people come to us for advice around starting social impact or 
give back types of businesses. And the thing that we always tell them is no matter how great your social mission is, if you don't have a great product that's differentiated in the marketplace in some form or fashion, whether it's value, price, quality, whatever it is, then it's unlikely that the business will succeed on the mission alone. And so that's why once we discovered that we wanted to solve this problem, we told ourselves, okay, if we're going to donate a lot of socks, we need to sell a lot of socks. And if we're going to sell a lot of socks, we better make the best damn socks in the history of feet. And so we spent two years on product development, having never made a single product in our lives, tearing everything apart, going to stores and looking at socks that cost a dollar and socks that cost $36 and trying to understand what differentiated all of them and pulling the best features and benefits from all of the different products that we saw in the marketplace, Frankensteining them together, and then overlaying Randy's genius when it comes to brand and copy and strategy. And like that's where we decided to put the product out in the marketplace. And neither of you had any background in apparel or textiles, right? No, I think that was a huge benefit for us, actually, if you think about it. It seems counterintuitive, but coming at it with a consumer mindset, rather than saying, hey, we've made socks before. If you put a seamless toe and that costs an extra X amount of per pair, it makes your margins. We didn't have any of those preconceived notions. What we had was a desire to make the best product in the world for our category, knowing that that was how we would be able to help solve the problem in our community. Yeah, we really came at this from the customer lens. And I think you look at a lot of the disruptor brands that have emerged over the last 10 years, and a lot of them weren't started by industry veterans. It was started by people who were consumers of these products and said, almost like, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way to solve some of these problems that we're dealing with as consumers. And so that was really the lens in which we kind of went into the product development process. Yeah, I was listening to an HBR podcast not long ago, and there was a fintech entrepreneur on who was very successful. And they said that in the early days, they hired some person from MasterCard, and it was the biggest mistake they made because the person from MasterCard came in and wanted to do the same thing. They weren't disruptive. They're so close to the, they didn't see the problems or the opportunities. And it wasn't until they hired people who are not endemic to the industry that they saw amazing success. So at some point, did you or would you have to hire people who do have supply chain or apparel experience just for those connections? Or are you just totally like, no, never? For us, we needed that expertise at some point. When you start to grow a business and you need to scale and you want the quality to improve and not decline and you're trying to stick to us, you need somebody who's been there before. But that doesn't mean you have to give up what you believe in as a company and you have to change your core values to grow or you have to do it the way that some larger company did it who came before you. You need people who have experience but are flexible thinkers and finding those people is challenging, but it's certainly worth the effort from where we sit. And it's one of the things I think that continues to drive our success is the friction between now we have some of the best, most talented people in the industry that have grown up from some of the best brands like L.L. Bean and Bonobos and Patagonia and Nike. And it's our kind of inability or lack of that knowledge that continues to challenge them in an interesting way. And I think now they've adapted to realizing some of that. And that's what continues to, I think, push the best product and processes out there. And I mean, you guys are only seven years old as a company. 
Yeah. You know, what's funny is I was talking with our first employee, who's now our chief of staff, and we're kind of going through this interesting shift right now as an organization. We're around 150 employees, and it's kind of triggering Dunbar's principle where not everyone can know everybody anymore. And so I'm trying to do a lot of research on how company culture shift in this time frame. And we're getting, there's change management and process and stuff. And so it's a little messy right now from just like the growing pains of being a kid startup to wanting to be an adult. And we're kind of caught in the weird, awkward, early teen adolescent phase. And our chief of staff had turned to me and she said something that was so profound. She was like, we talk about being seven years old, but for the first three to four years, we weren't like really anything. We were like an amoeba at that point. Like we were like, had no structure. We were just like, every decision was made on intuition. So we really only been a company, like a real company for like the last two or three years. I have to tell you, and I say this as a compliment, it feels like you guys have been around so much longer. The presence, the awareness, not just from paid, but also from earned media. Your timing was just right. Like you said, it was after Tom's, just a little bit after Warby Parker, this one-for-one model. And I just feel like you guys have your heart in the right place. And I'm not trying to just fanboy on this podcast because I do ask tough questions on occasion. But when the anti-racism movement had, thankfully, a resurgence and BLM has more momentum now than ever before, you guys decided, probably without even thinking twice, that you're going to get involved and in a meaningful way. So you chose, correct me if I'm wrong, five charities. You said you're going to donate a quarter million dollars some of it in the form of donations. How does that come about? I'm assuming it comes from you guys, but it's probably also part of your culture. I know you're talking about this Dunbar's principle and it's also used in the military after 150 people. What got you there might not be the same culture it needs to get you to scale, but something is right. And it sounds like being good, giving back and having social impact and not just in a one-for-one model, but also finding other ways to help in the moment is very much part of who you are and what makes you special. Honestly, I think Randy would agree with this. Most of the credit around all of this needs to be given to what is aptly named in our company, the Black Hive. So a lot of our branding is around bees and we refer to the whole company as the hive. We work together as a team to make our world a better place. And as one of our kind of organic ERGs, employee resource groups that formed, they aptly called themselves the Black Hive. And I'd say that we're at this kind of size and scale where we started to have enough of a presence across multiple race and gender and sexual orientation groups that people can start to form. And I'll be the first to say with four cisgendered white male founders, there's a lot of work that we need to do still. And I'm so grateful that we created a culture and attracted people that feel comfortable enough to speak to us as the founders and the executive team about what they believe we need to do. And so while I think we were there to take action and enable the team to react in the way that we reacted, a lot of the credit around how we should be reacting is solely given to them. I think in addition, if you think about what we stand for as a company and our commitment to the homeless community, figuring out where that intersected with the social movement that was going on in this country with anti-racism, with Black Lives Matter, understanding that while the general population is 13% Black, the homeless population in the U.S. is 40% Black. Companies, the organizations, the shelters that we work with, they are doing hard work every day trying to 
help out a community because of the pandemic, because of the way the institutional racism is structured in this country, there are a lot of people who are suffering and we're supporting these charities and finding the place where it makes sense for us to comment, for us to contribute, for us to act. That's a group effort. It can't just be the founders and the executive team. That's not how we run the company. We want to hear from our whole group of people who are at this company because they care about the community where we all work and live. And how did you pick these charities? Was it the Black Hive and your employees that helped pick Second U Foundation, Sister Circle, National Bail Fund Network, Black Lives Matter, and the Marsha P. Johnson Institute? Some of those were selected by the Black Hive, and some of those were already Bombas giving partners that we were already working with in the community. So doubling down our commitment through monetary donations and continuing to learn from these organizations about what they're doing and then how we as a responsible corporate citizen can be acting in this moment. This is a conversation as much as it is a commitment through money and through support. And there's also the idea of amplifying voices and shining a light on people who are doing amazing work every day. And you started off raising money through crowdfunding. Indiegogo. Then you got on Shark Tank. I've had other guests who are on Shark Tank and they said it was freaking terrifying. Like actually a lot harder than the snippets and the clips that we see that have been highly edited. And I'm just wondering, what was that experience like? And I know that Damon John is a huge fan. He still says it's one of his favorite brands he ever supported. That's a lot. That's major props from someone like that. So what was it like? He gets the accolade of, he's very proud of this fact that he gets to claim that he invested in the number one highest grossing revenue Shark Tank brand. So we love Damon and we're super happy to have him on our team. The experience was a bit weird for us because Randy and I were huge fans of the show, but we were like, all right, we're in New York. We're kind of Silicon Alley, right? Like this is not a way that we thought of like kind of growing our business. And we ran this very successful Indiegogo campaign. And six months later, we get this random email into my inbox from Shark Tank Casting 5093 at gmail.com. And it says like, hey, we saw your campaign on Indiegogo. Would you be interested in trying out for the show? And I'm thinking this is like one of those scam emails that they're going to ask for my social security number or my bank account information or something like that. But on a whim, I forwarded it to Randy and I was like, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, let's respond. What do we have to lose? And so we responded and the process kind of took off. And being fans of the show, I think the one thing that Randy and I knew that like you can't control it's live television. You can't control the outcome. But what you can control, or at least to a certain degree, is not looking like an idiot on national television. <laughs> so we were like, let's spend the next four months hardcore boot camp style preparing for this. So we had a list of 300 questions in a spreadsheet that we had compiled based on all the past episodes that we had ever seen as kind of the most commonly asked questions and made sure we had very detailed answers that would lead us to answer questions. Like we were trying to control the narrative as much as possible. That didn't work. No, (laughs) (laughs) No, it definitely didn't work. So it was super nerve wracking, but I actually thought that the edited version was far more hardcore than like, I mean, we were in there, we were laughing and we were like joking around with them. And I think a lot of that goes to one of our core values that we've established as a company, which is like, just don't take yourself too seriously. Go in, have fun, try to make the most of it. 
and realize at the end of the day that this is a television show. And so like, they're obviously going to try to create some angle of drama. And if you don't, then probably your episode's not going to air. Yeah. I mean, it's over an hour of filming for an eight minute clip. They're trying to add the drama in and pull pieces from here to put them in here. And you just got to go with it. That's the only way you can really enjoy the experience or try to enjoy the experience. But it is nerve wracking when you walk down that hallway and you're like, oh, I'm on this TV show. (laughs) It becomes really clear to you in that moment. How long between taping and airing? And did they tell you four months? We taped in June and aired at the end of September. And they gave us three weeks notice. And you were under NDA to not say a word. Correct. Yeah. That's hard. It's hard not to talk to your family or friend. I mean, that's such an exciting moment, especially because this is your baby. It must be very challenging not to say anything. You know, it's harder not having enough inventory to go into that moment. <laughs> knowing that the pure unknown of it all, yeah. You cannot get ready in time and you don't want to over plan for it because you know that the air date could change or they could pull it or anything. There's just a lot of uncertainty. So you just have to kind of go with it and do the best you can. Had you both left your full-time, full-paying jobs at that moment, or are you still oh, yeah. kind of hybridized? You were. Okay. You're all in. Yeah, we've been working on it for over a year full-time at that point. And what was that moment like where you're like, okay, so the steady paycheck, comfort, security, I'm going to leave it all behind. I'm going to basically take everything I have, all of my equity, everything I own, and I'm going to 150% focus on this one thing called Bombas. That's the key word is focus. We had been working on it for a while, but in that moment when we were both sitting there writing our Indiegogo script and thinking about what the launch of this company would look like, there's a little bit of added pressure in that moment in a good way. It's a motivating factor. It concentrates the timeline and it felt exciting. At the same time, you want progress to happen and you don't know if it's going to be real at some point, but you're there and You say, like, we have a certain window to get this out, to get it live, to get it right. And that's an exciting and scary moment at the same time. I think Randy's going to laugh because I'm not sure if he remembers this offhand, but he will when I say it. The joke is that for the two-year period in which we were, like, doing product development and kind of, like, building the brand and whatever, the running joke was that we always tell everyone, we're like, we're going to launch in a couple months. We're going to launch in a couple months. And... A couple months <laughs> came and we just like realized like we just had so much to do. And like every time we thought that it was only a couple months away, we'd realize, oh no, we actually have like, we're going to build a financial model and then we've got to write this script and then we've got to shoot the video and then we've got to like get final production samples. And then like the, this round is not right. So we've got to go back. And like, it was always this trailing couple of months that we said that we were going to launch the business. I think we said a couple of months for two years. And ultimately, I think we both turned to each other and we're like, this couple of months thing, we've got to actually like put a date out there. Let's quit our jobs and like run towards, there's so much to do that let's just finally go for it. Yeah, that's interesting to think about now. <laughs> Some of the projects we have going on in a couple months. A <laughs> couple of months. I'm going to guess that your first foray into product development might not have been great. Like you learned a ton. I mean, listen, we're still on our first foray into product development. It is a continuous process. It wasn't like we put this product to bed. It's iterative forever. That's the way we think of it. For us, we want to make the best version of our product. We want to continue to try new things, push 
the limits, like get excited about dropping a backing yarn from one section of a sock to change the breathability for a specific sport. But it started with seven material improvements to a sock. It started with the cotton and wools that we use or testing 137 tension levels on a calf sock so that it stays up, doesn't fall down, but doesn't leave marks on your leg. This is the thing where we would turn to each other and we'd say, what are we doing? We're like obsessed with socks. and <laughs> No one grew up dreaming of being in the sock business, but you get excited about a product and you realize that it has a huge impact in a very small way on like the daily comfort of our users and on the community. And these two ideas keep coming up for us and it pushes us. So product development is a never ending open case for us. Is there anything you would have done differently over the last seven years that you're willing to share? If you had to rewrite the script or redo it all, what would you have done differently? It's a really hard question. And one that I think we think about often because for all intents and purposes, we're seven years old. We've got a company doing over a quarter billion in revenue a year, extremely profitable, raised very little funding, a team of 150 people in seven years, only seven people have ever left the company. We've donated over 40 million pairs of socks to those in need. We've built a network of 3,500 giving partners that in times like COVID, our partners like Brooklyn and Clean Cult, who had bed sheets and cleaning supplies, came to us and said, what can we do? How can we help? We're able to plug them in immediately to get much needed items out because we had this network and we had a team dedicated to doing that. Look, that's not to say that we didn't make mistakes along the way, but I like to think that everything that we did kind of led us to here. The one thing I would change if I had a crystal ball to say, like knowing where we were going to be, I think one of the things that is kind of our blessing and curse is that about projections financially, we're incredibly humble and conservative. And so every year we'd be like, ah, there's no way the business is going to like double or triple again. At some point it's going to slow down. And then it doubled and then it tripled and then it continues to grow 100% year over year, even to this point. And so planning for that type of hyper growth is next to impossible. I mean, so there's a lot of things from a process standpoint, and there's probably some key hires that if I looked back, I would have said, man, I would have brought that person in 12, 18 months ago so that they were making impact today, given the size and scale that we're at. But it's hard to look back and say that I would have done anything differently because I'm super proud of the company that we've built and where we are today. And I think we're really set up to continue that growth going into the future. Did you say you've only had seven employees leave? Yeah. That's insane. So it's got to be a combination of equity and culture because that's bonkers. I mean, that's insanity, especially in a startup environment. There's definitely like specifics around why we think that is. But philosophically, Dave and I have worked at places in the past, and we've talked about this a lot, where people were great and the culture was toxic or was run a certain way. One of the things that we said first before we started anything was we want to build the kind of place where we want to work. And we think that it has to be built around our employees. And we have to be super transparent about how the business is run. You mentioned equity, like what your equity means, when it could mean something to you and what your job means and how that connects to the work we all want to do in the community. And what does it mean to like be a part of this community? And to support each other and not take ourselves too seriously. What kind of place do we want this to be? That is 
primary to how we built this business and are continuing to build the business. And that focus, I think, has allowed us to grow. And then there's obviously the success. People like being part of something that's working, but also attract the kind of people who want to give back. And this team is built like that. And they're committed to making it work and to understanding how their work impacts the company as a whole. And they're aligned with our core values. And it's not any one thing. I mean, you mentioned equity and that helps as well, but it's like everything in total is, I think, the reason why people not only stick around, but feel ownership over our future as a company. When we started this thing, we looked at each other and we said, we can't control if this is a successful company. We can't control if it's profitable. We can't control how much money we raise. We can't control, like, there's a number of variables that honestly, we just have to like go out there and try. The one thing that we can control is building a great company culture because that starts with us. And it's the way that we treat people and it's the way that we share the information. And it's the way that, as Randy said, we take the time to educate people. How many people work at startups and they're like, here's your stock option agreement or here's your equity grant agreement. And if you're a 22-year-old out of design school, you've never had a business class in your entire life. You're like, I don't know, sign this piece of paper. Like, well, we sat down and we said, let us talk you through. This is what equity means. And this is what financing means. And when we raise more money, this is what dilution means. But you may be taking dilution, but it's at a higher value. Like really talking people through all of these things and bringing them along for the journey. And then I also think things like framing. We, from day one, said we don't want people using the word boss at our organization. Boss denotes that I tell you what to do and you do it. Whereas we try to embrace like a manager coaching, uh, coworker, teammate, those are the words that we find our employees are using because I learn, Randy, I know for the same thing, I learn just as much from our entry-level employees as I do from our senior level. And in a lot of ways, more times often than not, I'm learning more from the younger generation than I am from the senior level staff. So to think that there's hierarchy just because I've been doing something longer than somebody else, I think is naive. So it's just kind of like, the way that we framed the culture, one of these things that we've done from day one is we just said that everybody in the company gets their bonus or no one gets their bonus. We didn't want to create cultures where we've worked previously, where people are like, well, the marketing team got their budget because of you gave them all the hires that they wanted. And my team's a cost center and I'm left to like scrounge for the pennies that are left over. And then the ops team hates the marketing team and they don't want to work together. And they like, it creates infighting. And it's like, we didn't want a culture like that. We wanted to like really build teammates. And again, this kind of goes back to this idea of working together as a hive to make our world a better place. It's ride or die, basically. And COVID, real quick, how has that impacted your business either in challenging ways or were there, I hate to say it like this, but there are a lot of businesses that have done very well. And I'm just kind of curious from a cultural standpoint, as well as from a sales standpoint, how has COVID, now that we're seven months into this pandemic or more, how has it impacted your business and how are you dealing with it? I'd love for Brandy, Randy to talk about... He is Brandy. He's a brand guy and his name is Randy. So he's it's Brandy. It's a nickname that's developed <laughs> yeah. internally. But I was trying to say, I would love for Randy to talk about how our brand has responded. But I think from a cultural standpoint, that's probably been the thing that's hit us the hardest. 
We are a highly collaborative team. As I said before, not a lot of people have left. It's because a lot of people have forged relationships that go beyond the workplace. We have employees that are roommates with each other after meeting each other in the office, working on separate teams. We have people who go on vacations together that met at Bombas. So that I think is certainly the thing that I'm most worried about and think most about is like, how do we create culture at home? Because it's weirdly this like great equalizer. Like when you can't have those inter-office moments where you see people being naturally kind to the cleaning staff, or I have a personal relationship with a homeless guy who is in the neighborhood of our office and he comes to the office and I buy him lunch and I give him clothes. And when you can't see these little moments that are happening throughout the day that kind of define the broader culture, you start to worry, is that going to fade away? And from a business perspective, COVID has been really great to us. We are a business that we're kind of set up for this. We're 98% direct to consumer through our .com. We've been doing this for seven years. We have some of the best, most talented people in kind of e-commerce, everything from supply chain to logistics, to marketing, to customer service and creative. And so our business has actually doubled since COVID hit. I mean, obviously we experienced the dip that I think everybody experienced in those first couple of weeks. And this is also put additional stress on the team because I think like everybody else, we're like, I don't know, how long is this going to last? Is this just a blip? So we like constrained resources and said, let's put a hold on hiring and let's not overspend on our budgets and let's pull back where we can to create a little bit of a safety net should the proverbial S hit the fan. But the business is outperforming. And so people are now overworking to kind of keep up with that. But I think how we responded as a brand also kind of feeds into that. And I think Randy should talk a little bit about that. It's almost hard to remember the feelings in those first few weeks of COVID. Things have just shifted so rapidly and changed day by day and then week by week. But for us, what was important was when we looked at how we were communicating as a brand and what we stood for. And the actions we were taking in the community, nothing really had to change for us. What had to change maybe was the cadence of messaging or making sure that the frequency of our giving updates increased so that people understood how we closed the loop on our donations and that the efforts or how we've shifted our volunteer efforts to add some virtual volunteering, bring other brands into the fold to help get needed supplies, medical supplies, clothing supplies, sheets, as Dave mentioned earlier, cleaning supplies to the organizations that we work with and frontline medical workers. So having a giving infrastructure in place when we started and one that was built over seven years and is nationwide in all 50 states allowed us to lean on that and then amplify that messaging a little bit more. But none of our actions had to change except to sort of try and adapt to the moment and make sure that we were centered around our mission and giving as we always have been. But it's just, it was sort of a cadence of messaging. And then having that to lean on as a company was super important. I think our employees rallied around that. The giving team has always been central to what we do. But in this moment, I took a lot of solace in knowing that the work that we're doing as a company is impactful and that it was relevant in the moment. And the rest of everything else, the machine that Dave talked about that we have in terms of marketing and that stuff was working, it was there, but we could really focus on our mission in those moments. And it's helped us, I guess, resharpen our pencil around that as a company a little bit. 
I think two really good examples I just want to point out. So Randy and I are actually quarantined together for the first few months of COVID. And right when this stuff was all going down, Randy as our chief brand officer as a lead into creative and obviously the emails and stuff that go out. And I remember him saying, we're putting a hold on all product related emails because he noticed as a consumer and someone who's like super in touch with kind of the brand world, he's like, it feels really odd that I continue to get emails while the world is like on fire and nobody knows where they're going to get toilet paper and cleaning supplies to get an email from someone to be like, check out our spring favorites. And it's like new floral patterns are now hitting. It's like, get ready for the beach. And you're like, super tone deaf. Yeah, it's super tone deaf. And so he made the call to say like, it may take a hit to revenue, but let's be aware of how we're talking to our customers and focus on our giving messaging. And then I think one of the other proudest moments is, and it's a small example, but it speaks to the type of culture that we've created because we didn't actually come up with this idea or kind of even have to approve it was our corporate gifting team whose sole job is to reach out to companies and hospitals and universities to sell them co-branded belly bands and socks for corporate events or as gifts for clients. And they said, there's no way we're going to call people right now and ask them to buy thousands of dollars of socks to give to their employees or clients. And they said, what can we do to help? And so what they actually did is started reaching out to all of their hospital clients who had previously placed large orders and said, hey, what can we send your workers for free? What can we send to the people who are on the front lines who are putting their lives at risk? And we found out that a lot of them were working 12-hour shifts and not being able to change their socks or T-shirts or underwear. And so the corporate gifting team with full autonomy took the initiative to just send tens and thousands of pairs of socks out for free to hospitals and other frontline workers. And again, I think we took a step back and we're like, wow, this is the type of company we created where they feel so empowered to make decisions like that, that instead of bringing revenue in, they're sending cost dollars out because they know that that's how you build loyalty and a great brand for the long haul. I remember the first four to six weeks quite distinctly, call it mid-March to the end of April, maybe even early May. And the mainstream brands are doing some weird shit. They had like this very strange music. It was all like the same kind of downtrodden music. Yes. And you almost expect that guy from the movie trailers is like, in a world where people are dying. (laughs) Like, it's just so weird. And then you have these car companies like, we're here for you. You want to get your car service? Oh, you want to buy a car? You can buy it over seven years. I'm like, who the fuck is buying a car right now? It just felt so off. So I think the brands that were built on purpose, like Bombas, and also were not just built on purpose, but it's authentic. At the end of the day, there is no survivor's guilt that you're doing so well because all it did is enable you to give back more because the better you do, the more you can give. And that's, I think, what happened with you guys. That idea has to be built in to how we communicate all the time. We have to know that the structure, the infrastructure that I talked about of giving is real and authentic. So we're happy to talk about it and get credit for it at any time. And our product is really good. So whatever we can do to get on people's feet, we're very happy to do that. And then both sides help each other out. So I talk to people who are sort of like guilty marketers. This is like a thing. Because you push out something that maybe they don't fully believe in, or they're playing some sort of game around the algorithm or trying to make sure that they understand the auction better. But if you're doing that and you really understand the purpose, 
behind it. And it's all in service of the ideas that we've put out there and that you've bought into. It makes it guilt-free and it allows people to free themselves up to think a little more creatively about these things and to act in these moments. Purpose doesn't have to have the music with the violin playing in the background. We always say that. We're happy to talk about stories of our giving partners, members of the homeless community who we meet, amplify their voices, not be so intense about every one of these moments. And I think it makes it a little bit different for people receiving it, for our supporters and the people who are following who we are. And I think that tone hopefully comes across where they understand, well, maybe it just doesn't have to be the way I assumed it has to be when you're talking about serious topics. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I often wonder whether or not these larger brands are going to be able to make those pivots. I know Unilever is doing a lot. A lot of these bigger companies now are trying to imitate the Bombas and the Toms and Warby Parkers of the world. And we love that. I love it too, as long as it's real. And even if it's not where their heart is, but they're still doing some good, I'll take it. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, my background's mostly in PR and crisis, so I have a very tight lens of skepticism. So I look at everything, I ask three times before I, yes, I believe in this vision. Customers sniff this stuff out on you. They smell it on you from like the minute you open your mouth as a brand, whether it's real or it's not, the product side, the giving side, any of it. People are more skeptical than ever. They're more savvy. They've been marketed to. They also have a voice now. They voice through social media. So like the stakes are so much higher to get it right too. Yeah. It's funny. I, as a runner and a cyclist, I've always said, it's not about the shoe. It's always about the sock. I mean, you need to have a good shoe, but if your sock isn't good, the shoe sucks. It doesn't matter. You're hired. <laughs> it's like you could have the fastest computer, fastest processor in the world, but if your Wi-Fi sucks, it doesn't really matter. So <laughs> listen, you guys are, first of all, you're such a pleasure to talk to, which I knew was going to happen. And it's so nice to see a true team. Like you guys are definitely a team. This is old adage of, is a business built on friendship or is a friendship built on business? You guys are kind of in between because you were friends, but you're also working together and now you're working together and you're also friends. And it's just nice to see. I'm not trying to get all weird, but it's so nice to see because it's rare. It doesn't usually last and it's lasted seven years. And I wish that it lasts for another 10, 15, whatever number of years and that others follow in your footsteps because I think what you've done is fucking awesome. Thank you. I'll take this as a moment to say that we also have two other co-founders, my brother, Andrew Heath, and our chief creative officer, Aaron Walk. And they're a little bit more of the behind the scenes co-founders. But if you think it's difficult just to keep this alive, I mean, we've got four of us who've been in this thing since the start. And we always, at least a couple of times a year, we look at each other and we're just like, you know what? thick and thin, the best thing that we could have all asked for is that we have tons of mutual respect and that we didn't let a business get in front of a friendship. And because you hear all these horror stories and oh yeah, it's like one co-founder, we've got four and here we are seven years in and we have just as much trust and respect with each other as we did from day one, if probably not if even more. You almost have a minion. You're not quite there, but you're close. You're pretty close. Six more? I don't know if we could do 10 co-founders. Six more. We're close on that with our executive team, who's all been here basically from the start as well. And similarly, I think we've got a tremendous amount of respect for each other. And in this moment in particular, it's folks like you and your co-founders and your executive team that really are making a difference and you're showing how it's done. So it's been amazing having you on. I know that I've pursued you pretty aggressively for the last six, seven months. So grit does pay off. And I think it just wore you down. <laughs> 
I think I just wore you guys down. Were you aware but of I appreciate I it. I wasn't aware of it. This is our comms team. They're very diligent about who we speak with. If you made the cut, then it must be good. And I was trying to find every backdoor possible. I'm like, wait, it's David's mom. Where'd she get her nails done in town? Okay, wait, I got to talk to somebody. That's right. Yeah. Hey, by the way, yeah, I know this guy has his podcast. By the way, my mom <laughs> is definitely the most direct line in whatever my mom says, I do. So if you are really trying to get something done, go find her. She'll make it happen. <laughs> you and me both. I think we all have the same mom. David, Randy, co-founders of Bombas, thank you so much for being on. And I wish you all the best. Thank you. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Mm-hmm.